Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel continues our Family Matters Sermon Series. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! You know, I believe that God speaks to us. He speaks to us every time we gather to hear from His Word. And uh, one of the prayers of Scripture is that we might have ears to hear, and that's my prayer for us this morning. I believe He speaks to us, too, through each other through the counsel of godly people who speak into our lives. And I also believe he speaks to us through circumstances where you go, that's not just a coincidence, that's God, right? And so let's be people who are listening for the voice of God as he speaks into our lives. I believe he's often speaking and it's more of a question of are we listening and are we watching? Today's message is uh, you're getting two for the price of one. I'm blending together two messages. Originally. Uh, in this Family Matters series that we've been going through, looking at different elements of family and the challenges that we all face. Originally, I titled the sermon, Divorce, Remarriage, and Blended Families, When Things Don't Work Out as Planned. And the goal of that would be to talk about God's amazing grace. We've been talking about the fact that God is a redemptive God. And that because of God's grace, he rewrites the rest of our story if we're willing to walk with him into that grace. So that would have been sermon number one here. And sermon number two came out of a conversation with someone who said, you know, what we need more of in our homes is grace. And I thought about that and I thought, for sure we do. We need more grace in our homes, always. And uh, and so I'm wanting to talk about having a grace-filled home or be a grace-filled family. So I'm trying to weave together two applications coming out of one idea. We're going to talk about grace today and I'm hoping that you can take it and apply it not only in those two settings because there's very uh, uh, nuances to what your family situation might look like today that doesn't meet either of those two. Grace, what is it? Well, if you've been around the church long enough, you know that we talk a lot about grace, but it's not spoken about that much out in our community, is it? Um, When I was a kid growing up, we invited friends over for meals from time to time and this one kid came for a meal and he sat down and we were serving the food and the food came to him and he started to eat. My dad said, oh, wait, wait, Uh, we don't start eating here until we say grace. And the kid goes, oh, oh, okay, grace. And then he started to eat. (laughs) We we got a little chuckle out of that, but it made sense looking at it through his uh, worldview. He didn't understand what was being said there. But grace is a fantastic word. Once you know what it means, and once you have experienced what it feels like, there's few things in life that are better than when grace is extended to you. It's not just a definition in our head. It really is something that we experience, isn't it? And we experience it not just once, but over and over and over again because that's the transforming work of God's grace in each of our lives. It's defined often as unmerited favor and in in thinking of our relationship with God, unmerited or undeserved favor with God. It isn't something that you can earn by your good behavior. It's something that God is giving to you. But in relationship to each other, it's an act of kindness or something being done for you or to you that you didn't deserve. Um, It's the story of the prodigal son, really, right? I mean, this kid who asked for his inheritance before his parents have died and he takes the money and he goes off and he squanders it away and then he realizes he'd be better off to be a servant in his father's household so he comes back and his dad is waiting for him and he gives him a big hug and he brings him in and he throws a party. That's grace. He did not deserve his father to respond to him when his actions had been so bad. Undeserved favor. We often link mercy and grace together because they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Right? On the one hand, grace is receiving something good that you didn't deserve. On the other hand, mercy is not getting a punishment that you should be getting for your 
actions or whatever you did that was wrong. And so you kind of see this relationship between the two. When I was about 17 years old, I'd borrowed my older friend's motorbike. He didn't mind me using his bike. There was a gravel pit close to where he lived, and we'd get his Yamaha 225 or 250 or whatever it was. We'd go out in the gravel pit, and we'd jump the hills, and it was a lot of fun. But on this particular day, we got a flat tire, or I did, on his bike. And I took it back to his place, and I left in his garage, and I intended to fix the tire, but I forgot. And, you know, the next week, I was having a conversation with him because he had gone out to use his motorbike, and you know what happened. He had a flat tire, and I was the one who'd caused it. And so he came to me, and he explained the situation, right? And I felt terrible. I felt like a real winner. And then he said this. He goes, hey, you're welcome to use my motorbike. It's not a problem. I just want to know if you have a flat tire or fix it right away. You know, that was grace and mercy all rolled into one little situation. I've never forgotten that because I know what I felt at that moment. On the one hand, I felt really bad for what I had done. And on the other hand, I felt really good because he still let me use his motorbike. And it was just this experience of grace and mercy uh, toward me. When we experience that, it's like experiencing forgiveness and kindness and goodness all wrapped into one little moment. And maybe you've had those experiences in life. I sure hope that you have had. It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, Jesus never used the word grace, but he was modeling it constantly. Uh, The Apostle Paul comes along, and he uses the word grace more than 100 times in the New Testament because he was trying to help his young believers understand what salvation was all about. And central to that was this idea of grace. John 1.17 says that the law was given through Moses, and there's a contrast being played here. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some versions say that he came full of grace and truth. And there's this wonderful balance in Christ that I think we as his followers are always trying to strike. It's this balance between grace and truth. The word of God is the truth. We submit our lives to the word of God. On the other hand, we are not perfect people, and the people that we rub shoulders with are not perfect. Therefore, it takes grace to interact with them. And so what I learn from Jesus and what he models with people is he wants to speak the truth, but he approaches people with grace. And we see that time and time again in the encounters that Jesus has with people or the encounters that people have with Jesus. And I think it's a model for us to follow as well. So as I look at the New Testament, I think about Jesus, first of all, calling his disciples. You might not know this, but historically, that was not the way that it worked. If young disciples wanted to follow a rabbi, they would fill out like an application form. They would have like a resume. And then the rabbi would go through the resumes looking for the best ones, and he would choose the ones that were the best to be in his school. Jesus comes and chooses the ones that would never have made the cut. That's grace. We see it in the story of the prodigal son, which we've already talked about. We see it in the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, which if that isn't just the most warped situation in the world, that they would bring this woman before Jesus, uh, and we always wonder, well, where's the guy in all of this? But they bring this woman before Jesus, knowing that the law of Moses said that this is wrong and she should be stoned, and they pose the situation to Jesus, and Jesus starts to write in the ground. We don't know exactly what, but whatever he wrote, the older men in the town knew And they began to leave one by one until no one was left there. And Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? She says, they're not here. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. That's the grace. Go and leave your life of sin. That's the truth. Because Jesus doesn't want to leave us just where we are. 
story after story, meeting Zacchaeus, the tax collector. No one wanted to hang out with tax collectors and publicans and sinners. It's kind of these generic terms used for people that were on the fringe of society. And Jesus is meeting them and eating lunch with them. He comes up to a leper and he touches him before he heals him. He touches him first. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy all over his body. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his Uh, He fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And you can see Jesus reached out his hand and touched him before he healed him. You would think he could just heal him from a distance, no problem, and then touch the man. And one, one commentator or one pastor pointed out, he said, the healing revealed the power of Jesus, but his touch reveals his grace. Isn't that beautiful? His touch. Have you experienced Jesus' touch in your life? His touch of grace for each and every one of us. Grace is shown in the ways in which he loved people, accepted people, healed people, forgave people. The sinful and unimportant people in the eyes of the religious leaders were the ones who felt comfortable coming to Jesus. Jesus taught grace. Jesus taught it through his parables. He just didn't teach it as content. He told it in story. He modeled it in the way in which people interacted with him. So my thought is this. If Jesus is the one who models grace for us, then we should be paying attention to that because we want to model it as well. So I'm thinking about family in this particular um, context and in this series we're in. And if this is what Jesus models, and we're to model that as individuals, we're to model this in our homes. And how do we have a grace-filled home with spouse to spouse, parents to kids, kids to parent, and even beyond our, our own nuclear family? Uh, and if that's going to happen in my home, I've got to connect a few dots because I don't think that this really happens for us naturally. If we're honest, I think we all kind of struggle with this one, right? Inside our homes is not maybe as easy to show grace to those who are actually closest to us as it is to maybe show grace outside our home. Do you follow? Sometimes it's easier to show grace outside our home than it is right in our very home. And what I'm saying is it shouldn't be like that. We should show it in both places, right? It's got to be a part of who we are, and it flows out of us. And so Jesus is calling us to have grace-filled homes. It's a principle in the New Testament that um, it starts in the home and it works its way out. Whatever happens in the home is what the church should be, is how the church should work and operate in a community. And so we see this as a principle. We need to become grace-givers to those around us, and it starts with those who are right in our home. So I see kind of a, a flow for grace, how it works in our lives. If the goal is to have a grace-filled home... I need to become a grace-filled person. In order to become a grace-filled person, I need to experience God's saving grace in my life. I don't know how your mind works, but that's, that's how mine works. It starts with my relationship with God, that he's trying to do something in me that then can flow out of me, that then has an impact on those around me, and it should start with those that are closest with me in my family. <clears throat> Let's look at our salvation. What is this idea of grace that's so central? And I've just got like three verses here that I think really encapsulate well the uh, centrality of grace in our salvation, actually in God's salvation for us. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You can see what I highlighted there, right? You can see what I'm going for in this verse. It's in him, It's his blood, 
It's his salvation of the forgiveness of our sins. And it's this richness of God's grace that he's lavished. How often do we use the term lavished? We don't, right? Isn't it a beautiful word? It means that grace is radical. Grace is extreme. Grace goes above and beyond. It's over the top. It lavishes us. I don't know that we stop there long enough to think about the fact that God has lavished his grace on me as a person. Bill already referenced that 60% of people somehow in some way feel like they are unlovable. You know what? We're all in that stat. We're all there. I'm actually surprised it's not even higher than that. And what this verse is telling us is that God hasn't just said, okay, it's a concession, I'll let you in. No, he lavishes his salvation and his grace on us. That's what that verse is saying. Romans 3.24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Making the same point as the previous verse. It's about Jesus. It's freely given. That's what grace is. And this may be your favorite verses. A lot of people quote these often because they're so packed with the centrality of what salvation is and how we receive it. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I might as well have just highlighted the whole thing in green, right? I left a few unhighlighted, but that ver- those two verses really capture something that is so central to grasping what salvation is all about. And why I'm landing here is that if we can get that, if we can let that sink deep into our hearts and our minds and our souls, I believe then God begins to transform us in the way in which we think and the way in which we act and treat other people. Grace is undeserved favor with God. You are saved because of God's gift his gift of faith that he's given to you to even trust in Jesus. It's not something you earn. It's a gift. When someone gives you a gift, they don't say, hey, I need $55 for that gift. They give you a gift. And if you give a gift, you don't turn to them and say, you owe me money. Sorry, that's the same point. When you receive a gift, you don't say to the person, how much do I owe you? Okay, so either way, whether you're giving it, you're not telling them the price, and if you're receiving it, you're not saying, how much do I owe you? You receive it freely, right? We understand that. And when it comes to salvation, I think it's really clear to understand this because we so often just resort to, I gotta be a good person. I gotta earn this. There's something I gotta do to find favor in God's eyes. There is one thing you gotta do to find favor in God's eyes. That's humble your heart. Humble your heart and accept what he has done. Receive the gift that he has given to you freely. It's not free to him. It costs a lot. It costs the life of Jesus. And the verse goes on to saying you can't boast about this. Obviously, you can't boast about something that you had nothing to do with. But our minds go there again, don't we? If you could just kind of become like me, you'll be okay. You'll find your way. No, that's not salvation. It's looking at Jesus and knowing for a fact everything is based on what he's done for me. I can't boast about that. We boast about a lot of things. That we cannot boast. The only boast we have is Jesus himself. And one commentator put it like this, the first time you see the nail marks in heaven, in Jesus' hands, you will know that he's the reason why you're in heaven. I think what he's trying to say is we need to spend more time at the foot of the cross and realize what it cost in order for us to receive this incredible gift. Grace is either free or it's earned. Salvation is either free or it's earned. Grace is is what Christ has done for us. It's free to us, but it cost him his life. 
I start here today because we need to be reminded of how amazing grace is. If we don't remember, if we don't saturate ourselves in God's grace, it's not going to flow out of us. There won't be the transformation that we're hoping. And if I'm going to be a giver of grace, then I need to let God sink it deep in my heart. And sometimes we just need to reflect. Maybe we need to spend quiet time. Maybe we need to read some scriptures. Maybe it's that the experience that you had with God and his grace was so long ago, it's kind of been forgotten. Like maybe you know it in your head, but you don't feel it in your heart. Or, or maybe you were thinking too little of what grace really is and what salvation cost. Right? Maybe we have thought too little about what grace really is in our lives for God to save us. Or maybe we've never really had an understanding of what salvation really means, that it comes by grace. It could be that we have the, I'm a good person. I'll just keep working harder at this. I'm not as bad as really people. Surely I'm in. If anyone's in, I got to be in, right? There's all these different thoughts that we have, but grace says no to all of that. Grace says you understand that what has been done for you has been done by God, and he offers it as a gift. And what I'm saying is I think we need to spend more time reflecting on that because if I'm going to have a grace-filled home and if I'm going to have a grace-filled family, I have to be a grace-filled person. And if I'm going to be a grace-filled person, then I need to experience the saving grace of God in my own life. Galatians 6.10 and Colossians 4 inspire us in a few ways as to how to live this out and to who to live it out to. Galatians 6 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I want to couple that with Colossians 4. Be wise in the way in you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And what I see here is between goodness, do good, and let your conversation be seasoned with grace. Goodness, conversation, your actions and your words should be filled with grace. And I look at that and I hold it up as a mirror to my life and I say to myself, how much of the way I live my life is filled with grace? In my actions, in my words. And when I realize that I fall short, what it causes me to do is to reflect back what God has shown towards me. And if I realize that he's shown that towards me, then I know that he's wanting me to show it towards others. And this is a faith journey. This isn't just a math equation. This is a continual renewal, refreshing, repenting, so that times that are fresh in the grace of God will come again in your heart so you will again live a life of grace. I think we probably have all felt how powerful it is when we've experienced someone showing grace to us because it touches our heart. And when we reflect even on that experience, it can help us then realize, well, maybe that's what it'll feel like for someone else if I show grace towards them. When I was a, a young guy, um, I think it was grade four, if I'm remembering correctly, I had a school teacher who said, tomorrow I'm going to bring you all a treat. He's bringing cantaloupe and Rice Krispie Squares. I'd never eaten cantaloupe in my life, but Gary Bryan was going on and on and on and on about cantaloupe as if it was the best thing you'd ever eaten. I'd never had it before. Grade four. My mother couldn't afford cantaloupe. We ate oranges and apples. I never heard of it. And Rice Krispie Squares. Now that I liked. So the day of, we're heading out to have a little picnic out on the backfield. And Rod's doing what Rod does when he's in grade four. I fidgeted a lot. I talked a lot. Whatever I did, I'm pretty sure I wasn't in a single file line. Oh, come on. So boring, these single file lines. When we got to our spot, our teacher had enough. And he said, Rod, you need to go sit over there. Kind of like a grade four timeout, right? So over there, sat by a tree while the 
rest of the group was over here and uh, time was going on. He forgot. He forgot that I was behind him. I was behind his back and he's serving all the kids. And I could kind of hear, but I was kind of being punished. So I wasn't going to say anything, but he's like, perplexed, why do I have one more Rice Krispie square and one more piece of cantaloupe? He counted them all out and he couldn't understand. And there's Gary Bryant, oh, it's a cantaloupe. You know? So he ate the cantaloupe and he gave away the Rice Krispie square and then he realized that I was still behind him. Now here's where the grace element comes in. I actually didn't expect that I should have got the Rice Krispie square or the cantaloupe. I, just, I knew I'd done wrong and part of the punishment was you don't get the treat. I was fine with that. I'd figure that part out. My parents helped me, you know, kind of helped me figure that out. They were really good at that. Then when my teacher realized, it was like over-the-top apologetic. I mean, he came down, he got down on his knees, and he looked at me, and he was like, Rod, I feel so bad about this. I would have never have left you out of that treat. You got to understand, I just didn't realize that you were there. And I was like, yeah, no, no, I totally get it. But he was so over-the-top about it, and then he was so nice to me the rest of the day. I went home that day feeling something that I didn't always feel, and that's the feeling. I felt something called grace. Now, he didn't get to give me the cantaloupe or the Rice Krispie square, but I, f I knew his intention. I knew his heart towards me, and I felt something, and in that moment, it was, it was grace. And I walked away, and I've never forgotten that experience. By the way, I don't think I've ever shared that story with anyone, but grace is amazing, and when you feel it, you want others to feel that too. How do we create a grace-filled home? Well, it starts by understanding of our relationship to God. And the more that we can saturate ourselves in understanding that, the more that we're going to be it for others. But it also comes from our interactions with other people. We can learn from one another. And when you see or you feel someone's experience of grace towards you, incorporate that. Realize that you have that opportunity to show that to other people. When we experience grace, it softens our hearts. So for those of you who want to create a home filled with grace and you're raising children and you're like going, Rod, that is the furthest thing from our home. Do you know the chaos that ensues? Do you know the lack of control? Do you know how we have to try like boundaries and setting rules and clamping down and barking out orders and smarten up and sit still? Yes, we do know all of that. We know all of it. Those of us who have been parents, we get it. This is like an exceedingly difficult task. But what are you aiming at? I know that we want our kids to learn, we want them to be respectful, we want them to figure out life and all that kind of stuff, but how are you approaching that? Are you approaching it with the spirit of Christ that says lead with grace? Do your kids know what that feels like in their lives? It takes wisdom, it takes patience, you have to draw boundaries, you have to correct, you have to discipline, but what's the spirit that you're leading with in raising your kids? Is it a spirit of criticism? Is it a spirit where a standard is so high that they can never achieve it and they know their failures greater than they know the gifts that God has given them to succeed in life. You're the one who's gonna help them know the gifts that God has given them to succeed in life, but they might only ever hear or feel the standard that's so high that they can't achieve it. Parents, lead with grace. That's how you build a home that has a culture of grace in it. When we were raising our kids, my wife had read this book called Creative Correction by Lisa Welchel, and it had an idea about a job jar and all these really cool ideas of what you could put in the job jar by way of tasks that your kids could do around the house. And the way it worked was if your kids were misbehaving or you'd tried to correct them and they weren't, words didn't work anymore, you would just say, okay, it's time to go to the job jar and draw out a piece of paper and on there is a job. And that job they had to go do. It's a random task, you know? Clean the bathroom or scrub the toilet, all those fun ones. Uh, go to your sock drawer and organize your socks. I don't know. There was a whole bunch of them in there. 
So they pull it out and then they'd have to go do it, you know, vacuum and all that kind of stuff. But there was one in there that was either mercy or grace. I can't remember which it was. And if you drew that one, then you didn't have to do the task, the punishment that you were being given. And it was an attempt to try to help your kids understand the principle of grace in our lives, that we've been forgiven. Now, you can't put all of them grace and don't let them put a little blue dot on the back side of the piece of paper so they know which one to draw every time. There's various ways in which we can help our kids understand grace in our homes. But it comes down to us as parents and what we're aiming for and what we're modeling. And I want to encourage you, kids need a safe place. Everyone does. Spouses need a safe place to come home to, to know this is my place of refuge. This is where I belong. This is where I know that I'm loved. And that's what grace helps you create. Aim for that. One day your kids will grow up and one day you will want your kids to treat you with grace. And they will most likely treat you with grace the way in which you treated them with grace. The second group of people that I want to talk to this morning is the ones that are saying, yeah, well, my kids are all grown and things went sideways in my family. Maybe a marriage didn't work out or relationships with kids. Maybe there's been a divorce and maybe kids aren't walking with the Lord. It's all that hard stuff of life that so many families experience in the day and age that we're living in. Because there's been a lot of lack of support, I think, for the family unit in our times. It is possible that you might be thinking, I blew it and that's over. Um, I can't go back, I can't change it, I've messed it up, so I just live with whatever it is. And I want to say to you today, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. The same grace of God that was on you at the beginning of your relationship with him is the same grace of God that walks with you your entire life. He's not done with you. So often we're done with ourselves and we cut God off and we cut his grace off and he's saying, I'm not done with you. God's grace is the only thing that can rewrite the rest of your story if you let him. I was thinking about people in the Bible who the second half of their life, if I could generally use that term, was rewritten by God's grace. I mean, we talked about Peter, you know, three times denying Christ and then Christ coming along and saying, do you love me? He rewrites Peter's rest of his story. And he rewrites it again in further failures. Example of Paul. Paul thinks he's the best. Paul thinks he's righteous. Paul thinks he has it all together. And Jesus meets him on the road to Tibet, to da, 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 whatever, you know, that one. Where did he meet him? Thank you. Damascus. And, and who are you, Lord? And from that moment of grace shown to Paul in his life, Paul's rest of the story is rewritten by the grace of God. Why do you think that your life cannot be rewritten by the grace of God. My devotional time, I've been reading through Kings, Book of Kings, I get to 2 Kings chapter 21 and there's a story about a horrible king in Judah and his king Manasseh. Probably the worst king that ever reigned and he reigned a long time, 55 years in Jerusalem. This is what it says about him in 2 Kings. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole uh, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, if you can imagine that, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. That would be like the fire of Molech, one of these gods of the nations around him. And he practiced divination, and he sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger, no doubt. Are you worse than Manasseh? Manasseh's story doesn't end there. It goes on to say in 2 Chronicles that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people 
the people of Jerusalem and Judah. But they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner and put a hook in his nose, bound him with a bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. You catching that? He humbles himself. And when he prayed to God, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. What does he do? Afterward, he got rid of the foreign gods and he removed the image from the temple of the Lord as well as all the altars that he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and he sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So right God, wrong place. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. I look at that and I go, wow, God gives second chances to a guy like Manasseh. He can give second chances to each and every one of us. And he wants to. He wants to do that in your life, in your family situation. Only God is the God who can rewrite the rest of your story. And he does that by his grace. Where would any of us be without God's grace in our lives, honestly? And so my point this morning is to maybe just cause us to pause and to think about God's grace and to realize that his grace is still here for me. He is not done with me. Whatever your situation might be, God's voice to you today is one of repentance, of one of returning don't think the thought we often think, I'll just get my life cleaned up and then I'll come back to the Lord. That's not it. Grace is exactly what you need to come back to the Lord. It's the open door for you to take the step in the right direction towards your God who is waiting like the father of the prodigal son with his arms open wide, inviting you back in, throwing a party for you. You don't think that, do you? You don't believe that God throws a party for you because none of us think that God throws a party for us. We don't think that. We often think he throws the party for someone else, but he doesn't throw the party for me. I'm not worth it. But God says differently. He demonstrates his love toward us even while we were sinners. Even while we were sinners. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, then grace would no longer be grace. <laughs> That's what grace is. Grace is the only way in which we can come back to God. We don't deserve it. No, nope. we don't deserve it. Not at all. But he gives it, and it's an invitation to each and every one of us if we're willing to let him rewrite the rest of our story. Many of you have shared with me your personal stories, and I've heard them, and God is rewriting your stories. Keep sharing your stories. We don't listen enough to testimonies of each other. I'm guilty. I like talking sports and we can get into all sorts of stuff, politics and what's going on. Let's hear each other's stories because in those stories is God's incredible work of grace. If you want to create a home that's filled with grace and you want to be a grace giver, then you need to let the grace of God sink deeply into your own heart. And if you want God to rewrite the rest of your story, receive his invitation that by grace you come back to him. And God's grace is sufficient for you. This is a verse that I want to live. I want to leave it with you. 
I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Put your name right in there. He loved you, and he gave himself for you. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Can I ask you a question? Did Christ die for nothing? I want to hear a no. Thank you. He did not die for nothing. He died that his grace might be given to each and every one of us. Receive his grace. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.